Well, hello everybody. It is time for the weekend edition. Oh, yes it is. It's finally here. I'm a little late, but hey, I'm here. That's what matters. Are you here? Who knows? But welcome anyway. We've got some good stuff that this week we're going to be talking about Pardon me, we're going to be talking about me setting things up properly, but um, aside from that, we're going to be talking about the robocallers who got slapped with a nearly $300 million fine from the FCC. Oh yes, it's tasty. We're also going to be talking about the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund having a rough go because, well... So ISPs decided to, well, underbid themselves and not take into account things like, oh, inflation. Oops. Uh, we're also going to be kicking Windows while it's down. Well, Microsoft. Um, because it does not do security well. I know. Big surprise, right? If you've been following the channel for any amount of time, you know I'm going to pick on it whenever I can. Um, and you know, I, I honestly don't blame the engineers. I blame the higher-ups for their poor policies, among other things. Anyway, so then we've got undersea cables. We're going to do a little lesson of sorts on undersea cables and how, how they're made, what they are, what they do. I mean, these things make the world go round. Seriously, guys. Um, then we're going to be talking about this utterly inane light, incandescent light bulb band. If not efficient enough, okay? Bullshit. Pardon my French. Um, and I apologize to any French person who might be, you know, watching or listening. But you understand what I'm saying. Anyway, then there's the CCDH and Elon Musk. Well, the CCDH put out some rather scathing reports about hate speech being actually on the rise on Twitter slash X, okay? Which really hurt the platform because a bunch of panty waist, woke tard, ESG sensitive advertisers decided to pause punt, pause spending on ads due to these anyway so so Papa Elon <laughs> yeah right like I actually think that anyway 
Elon Musk and company are suing this tiny little nonprofit for tens of millions of dollars in damages. Mm-hmm. All right. And but before we get to in into all those stories, please feel free to like like the video if you're watching on Rumble. Uh, subscribe on Rumble or the podcast. Share it either way. And comment down below on Rumble. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now let's get into it, shall we? Alright, so those those scammers. Those geniuses. Roy Cox and Aaron Jones. I knew an Aaron Jones once. Nah, he wouldn't get involved with this sort of, sort of mess. Anyway. They orchestrated more than five, more than five billion, five billion calls to about 500 million phone numbers in the course of about three months back a couple years ago. I did the math, you guys. If it was just 5 million, that's 643 calls per second. Holy crap! I mean, given, I realize it's just VoIP and a recording, but dang! <laughs> and that is also if it was exactly 90 days, but who knows exactly how long it was, or whatever else, you know. Pardon me as I adjust myself on the camera here. Um, anyway. Yeah, that is some serious call volume, you guys. Okay. If you didn't know, I used to be a realtor. It was not a good fit for me. If, and I think you can imagine why. But I used to be a realtor. And one of the things that realtors do is cold call. That is a soul-sucking enterprise if there ever was one, guys. Seriously. It's... No. I, I couldn't do it for more than a month. Um, and that's the... That's the backbone of building your business in real estate. It's cold calling. So as you can imagine, I didn't do very well. But I digress. So, yeah. Um, and this is not the first time this tandem has been caught doing robocalling. And scamming through robocalling. So... The SEC came down like a ton of bricks. Like, seriously. Let me let me read off what their the fine that was assessed. $299,997,000. Woof. Ouch. I mean, just just the sheer logistics of that sort of call volume. I mean, 
that's a lot of rack space for all those VoIP ser servers and a lot of connection bandwidth to make over 600 calls a second. But to have it just work for that long, that's, that's something, you guys. And I got to wonder what the upfront investment was for the scam, because that sounds pretty darn expensive. I mean, given I don't know what the resources, the resource requirements are for something like that, but wow. Wow. Anyway. And then, you know, accessing the number database to get a hold of 500 million phone numbers. Last I checked, we have about 330 million people in the U.S. Yeah? So... How's that work? Oh yeah, because people have multiple phones sometimes, and... Maybe some boomers or silent gens that, that are still around have both a landline and a cell phone. So I've seen people running around with three cell phones. My God, three cell phones, people. Come on. It, don't, don't do that to yourself. Not to mention all the Skype numbers and other VYP numbers. Okay. Okay. But to f manage to scrape all that data, that that's that's some doing. Anyway, they also managed. To, they also baked in masking their caller ID so that people would actually pick up, because it would sound like it was coming perhaps from their. auto loan people or their dealership or their you know fill in the blank because this was about auto warranties um, and I know that my wife and I got a bunch of those calls <laughs> we never took them seriously because it just it smelled bad from the get go right um, but Gee, I'm, I wonder if for that harassment, my wife and I could possibly get some recompense from this fine when they pay it. Will they pay it? Who knows? But nearly $300 million of fines. That is something. That is really something. Um... But moving right along, we've got uh, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund on the rocks because ISPs got greedy. And in order to get these contracts to put in these fiber lines or whatever, these ISPs actually underbid themselves. Look, I used to work with my uncle's construction company back when I was in high school. And I remember hearing him and some of his guys talking about bidding jobs. 
I do. And that made like the way that they would bid jobs was like they were painstaking. Okay. Because they knew that they couldn't be exorbitant, but they also knew that they couldn't undercut their competition too far. Because if they did, they would have to do all sorts of shady things in order to actually make the bid and make some money, both for themselves and for their uh, subcontractors. So, I mean, perhaps these ISPs are not um, wise to this construction game or something. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit there, but um, yeah, they, a lot of them underbid in order to win the bid because they saw dollar signs dancing in their heads. Y you guys can't do that. It doesn't work. Um, anyway. So what is the RDOF, the, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund? Well, it is an effort on the part of the FCC to provide at least 100 megabit a second connections to rural Americans, farmers, ranchers, and the like, who are way out in the sticks, okay? where normally ISPs wouldn't go because there aren't enough customers to support the investment of building a fiber line out and out to the middle of the sticks and then all the connection endpoints to the farmhouses to the offices for the farmers Not to mention tiny towns. Which is great. If it ever gets completed. However, you know, brand inflation hit everybody alike. Um, and these guys are demanding these ISPs that under that underbid too far didn't effectively take into account all of these extenuating economic realities. <laughs> I just have to laugh because come on you guys. You you should know better. And any construction company you were working with should have told you, no, for a, a project like this, you need to take inflation into account, you guys. Um, because they know from their own experience, hopefully. Hopefully they didn't just hire Jim Bob or something. Um, but yeah, anyway... So they're complaining that they couldn't possibly have foreseen the cost would skyrocket so high. I mean, who knew that fiber costs would go through the roof? And who knew that 
inflation would hit so hard and oh, oh. so so SCC can 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 we work with can you work with us please can you can you let us revise our bids or or not penalize us for for backing out and the SEC goes well you guys you should have thought through this a little better um, but we'll consider it on a case by case basis very carefully so these bids the RDOF bids happened during 2020 so you know 45 was still in office things well in the midst of the in the midst of the lockdowns even in spite of the lockdowns right things still looked decent-ish economically you know we had our issues that were self-inflicted thanks to the menstruations of Anthony Fauci and Dr. Burks. But, but, these guys didn't play the cards right. They grossly underbid and it's it's hurting them. Badly. Um, so yeah. I I really don't pity these ISPs very much. Because these are things that they should have been tracking. That they should have taken into account better. When they made these bids. I'm sorry. But not sorry. It's pitiful, if you ask me. Just from a, a pure business standpoint, these guys really dropped the ball. Now, I mean, given, they're probably not uh, regularly doing construction work and not regularly having to bid construction jobs. But any general contracting firm that they hired should have given them a better idea of what inflation might do, what demand might do. Because as all these ISPs are trying to buy fiber, right? They, uh, they're gonna drive up the cost because everybody's trying to buy it all at once, right? Because when they probably initiated the purchase, the price was lower. Yeah. You guys got to do your estimations better. You can't just be bidding, seeing dollar signs dancing in your eyes. No. You got to be more sober with how you do things. Um, it's hard. Don't get me wrong. It's hard. But if you're going to play with play in the big boy's sandbox and bid for what are essentially government jobs, you gotta have a better idea what you're doing before you do it. Anyway, 
Now we get to kick Microsoft. Woohoo! All right, so Tenable, which is a cybersecurity firm, their CEO put out an absolutely scathing, I mean, brutal. <laughs> anyway, put out an absolutely brutal blog post about this one exploit that they found back in March. And this was released just a few days after, if you listened to last week's, Senator Wyden sent out a letter to the FCC and the DOJ, if I recall correctly. Um, just lambasting Microsoft for their attitudes about cybersecurity. Because their license agreements basically state, hey, if you guys find a problem, let us know. We'll take it, we'll take care of it. Just trust us. Trust me, bro. No. No, we don't trust you, Microsoft. We don't. Um, and this is why. Alright, so one of one of Amit Yoran's researchers discovered a critical vulnerability in the Azure cloud infrastructure, which could allow a hacker to access applications and sensitive data, including authentication secrets from enterprise customers who use Azure, including a bank, which they did pen testing on, because that's what they do. That's what security researchers do. They do penetration testing. You might call it hacking, but it's really white hat. It's to benefit, ultimately, Microsoft and their customers. So using this exploit, they were easily able to quickly discover authentication secrets to a bank which uses the Azure cloud for its infrastructure, right? They discovered and reported this back in March, guys. Now, more than 90 days later, according to Mr. Yorin, it's yet to be fully patched. There have been partial patches. Oh, of course there have been partial patches. But, yeah, not complete. And now we're looking at more than four months after it was discovered. And any client whose applications were launched before the partial patch are still vulnerable, according to Mr. Yorin, including the bank, which was used as a test case. Uh Oh, now Microsoft, of course, is trying to cover their asses. Again, pardon. Oh, guess I'll have to tick that box for bad language. Anyway, um, but, you know, I often feel like cussing when I talk about Microsoft. Um, yeah. Um, they claim that they've fully taken care of the problem for everybody. 
Of course they claim that. Of course they claim that. But the patching process was incredibly and unusually slow, even for Microsoft. Allegedly because they wanted to develop a quality patch. I'm sorry, if this was in a FOSS environment, the community would have taken care of something like this with a minimum of fuss. They would have figured it out in, you know, two weeks or 30 days, maybe. And it would have rolled out and it wouldn't have destroyed somebody's server. Not that I'm saying that that's happened with Microsoft. Because that was one of the reasons that they wanted to make sure that it was slow. Okay. They wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to interfere with anybody's operations when they rolled this patch out, which I suppose is admirable, but come on now. If you guys can't see through Microsoft's excuses at this point, you need to open your eyes a little bit, a little bit wider. Just reality. Reality sucks sometimes. Um, their excuses are as poor as their ethics when it comes to dealing with cybersecurity here, guys. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to make hay on this as long as I can. Um, oh, by the way, I have a product that'll help you get away from Windows. I call it the freed computer. Now, I fully recognize that this is a lot to ask. It is. Um, it's a lot to ask. Because it's about learning something brand new to you. Why would you want to do this? Well, privacy. Nobody with, well, I'm not going to say nobody, but there isn't a, an impulse or profit in most Linux distributions because these are nonprofits that, that operate them, that develop them. So they're not going to bake telemetry into their version of Linux, into their distribution of Linux. Now, I recognize this is a lot to take in early in the morning, <laughs> but just, just know that when you're running Linux, you're gonna be far more private by default than you are with a rootkit OS or a rootkit that's masquerading as an OS like Windows. Okay, because it exists to scrape data. We talked about this a, a few weeks ago. Like it's bad, you guys. It's terrible, actually. Um, this, like, I don't understand how Microsoft thinks they can get away with this. Well, then again, people have been programmed to just use Windows because. What else is there? Well, there's Linux. There's FreeBSD. But we're talking about Linux here. And security! 
because it's free and open source software, there's the potential for a whole lot more eyeballs on any given problem. And there are active bug tracking programs within the Linux kernel, within these various key pieces of software. So that when there's an exploit found, when there's a vulnerability found, it gets patched quickly. Like seriously, I get security updates in an Arch-based distro, sometimes multiple times a week because they're just rolling stuff out. Like it's fire guys, seriously, it's that fast. Um, so you don't wind up with a three to four month lag on a key security patch when you're running Linux. So you can buy a freed one or we can work together to free one that you already own. I'd love to talk to you about it. But yeah. I have to be straight though. With Linux, it's not always a, a cut and dried 100% compatibility thing. There are certain pieces of what I would consider legacy software, which are entirely proprietary and dependent on Windows in order to run. Things like Photoshop, well, the Adobe Creative Suite, um, and Microsoft Word itself, MS Office, though if you're going to switch, stop using Office. There, There's only Office, there's LibreOffice, there's... and a bunch of other alternatives, which work nearly as well and are compatible with varying degrees. Anyway, I'm getting in the weeds here, but the point is you can do almost anything that you can do in Windows in Linux with some caveats. But anyway, <clears throat> yeah. The irony is that most of the internet actually runs on Linux already. The server that this podcast, that this stream is sitting on and being pumped to you is probably running Linux because Windows Server sucks. Um, so, yeah. Um, if mega corporations, if hosting companies, if video platforms and podcast platforms have enough confidence in running Linux-based servers, then why shouldn't you take a look at it for your needs? Tell me down in the comments why you wouldn't. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. I'm not going to say there isn't. But it's worth it. 
for the greater security, the greater privacy. And by the way, without all that telemetry, your system will actually run better. Yeah, there's that. Anyway, we've got the secret life of fiber optic cables. Woohoo! All right, so about undersea cables. These, these are amazing little pieces of, of tech. And the idea is actually old. It's like 150 years old now. Because the first transatlantic cable was put in place between London and New York in the 1880s. Not long after Alexander Graham Bell introduced the, the telephone. So what are these cables? How do they work? Why is it that you can watch a concert from overseas with minimal lag? It's because of these fiber optic cables. And there are over 500 of them currently in existence. And about another 40 or 50 that are being planned to be put in place in the next couple of years. So each of them follow, handles a different batch of throughput. Okay. The average one's about as thick as a garden hose and can handle anywhere between 50 and 400 terabits per second per cable. And of course, there are companies that are working feverishly to improve that throughput, to improve that bandwidth. Um, some of them even see a potential path forward to creating cables which could handle up to five petabits of data per second. That's more than 10 times more bandwidth than today's best cables. Okay, so if we're talking about 400 terabits, that's like 400,000 one gigabit per second subscribers at once per second. And that's if all those connections were saturated it's rare that there are that many people saturating their connections. Okay. But when you're talking about the companies who use these the most, and they're what they call hyperscalers. Those are, these are the tech giants, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Metas, the, um, the Amazons of the world. Okay. They throw about two thirds of the world's bandwidth per second. The world's bandwidth. That's an insane amount of data. So, you know, if we average it out between 50 and 400 terabits, you're looking at something like what? 250 maybe or so on average. So 250 petabit or terabits times 500 cables or so. Uh, you're looking at what? 
20,000 petabits. Which would actually be 20 exabits of data per second or so. That is a lot of data, guys. A lot of freaking data. Um, anyway, I got bogged down here, but one, one thing is that they're looking at multiplying the number of cores per cable. Typical cables have one core. Okay. One. One company is looking at doing two and then four cores. Okay. And then another one, which Microsoft just bought at the end of last year, is looking at making hollow core. Why would they do that? Well, the speed of light is 47% faster in air versus glass. Let's think about that for a second. Air is less dense than glass. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, that's pretty insane. And that would reduce the latency and obviously increase the overall speed of transfers. So what's latency? We talk about lag, we talk about latency. This is the amount of milliseconds between when you request a piece of data and when it's able to be served you through the, through the network. And that's latency. Um, in land terms, that's ping. If you're a gamer, you're very familiar, familiar and sensitive to, familiar with and sensitive to ping. Because if your ping is too high and you're playing something like a first person shooter, you're gonna have a bad time because you're gonna have stutter and you'll get shot more readily and you'll miss your shots because where you think somebody is isn't where they actually are. Yeah. So that's, that's lag. And in the context of a video call, that's what causes de-resolution. That's what causes... And if you do overseas video calls, you're very familiar with this. It's, it can be painful. Um, on one of my other podcasts that I do, we periodically talk to one of our friends who's in Australia. And we can't do video during those calls, during those streams. Uh, because the lag is just awful. I mean, bad. And, you know, that could be anywhere in the mix. But the fact that he's 10,000 miles away from me and probably a little bit more than that from my co-host for that podcast, that's going to cause lag in and of itself. Because light isn't instantaneous. And most people don't have a fiber connection directly to their home anyway. I certainly don't. I wish I did. But whenever you go from fiber to copper, which is what most land cables are, which is much what most home connections are based on is fiber or not fiber, copper. There's going to be extra latency 
injected into the situation. Because electronic transfer of data cannot possibly be as fast as optical transfer of data. It's just the reality. Anyway, so this article talks about how these undersea cables are very vulnerable to breakages, whether to natural, due to natural reasons, or due to attacks, or something like an anchor or a fishing net just breaking it. Because these things are, they're, they're tender, they're sensitive. Um, I wish it wasn't so sensitive, but then the cables themselves would be far more expensive, wouldn't they? But these things not only bring better internet speeds, like far better internet speeds, which affects our ability to transfer funds, big business, right? Not to mention government, but big business. And lower prices to areas that get them installed fresh, right? But they also bring a 3 to 4% boost in employment in areas where they are introduced and a 5% a 5 to 7% boost to local economic activity. That's pretty huge, especially if you're talking about uh, they mention a small town in Alaska called Sitka. 8,000 people. It was a sleepy town before they got their fiber optic cable. But now they have it and things got better for them. It's just how it works. Anyway, you know, I mentioned breakages. Um, sometimes it's an anchor dragging in the midst of a storm. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's an earthquake. Sometimes it's a volcano. Sometimes it's just a really big storm and manages to snap a cable or two. And there are an average of 10 cables at any given time, which are, which have been broken. 10 out of 500. That's not a, that's not a bad ratio. Um, you know, you're talking about 2% of the cables. Pardon, coffee time. Anyway. Then, of course, there's natural disasters, major storms, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. And these cables are very fragile, guys. Remember, they're only, like, that big on average. And it's got a core or two of fiber optic cable, of the actual optical fiber in it. Some insulation and copper wire to carry the current to the repeaters. We'll talk about the repeaters later. So why not go all satellite instead? 
Well, because Starlink is awesome, right? Yeah. There's more latency because think about how far the data has to go. Think about how far the data has to go in order for your movie, in order for your video call, in order for your multiplayer game session to get from you to the server to the other person and then back. And wireless can be interfered with more easily than, say, wired connections. Which is why if you ever do streaming, I strongly suggest that you invest in a LAN cable. Don't do it on Wi-Fi. You'll have a bad time. Anyway, I digress. So the reality is that Starlink and other satellite-based communications only handle about 1%. That's 1% of the world's traffic right now. So with that stated, it makes a whole lot more sense to just keep improving, getting closer to perfection with these undersea cables. Yeah, they're expensive. They're $250 or $300 million to install one. But when you consider all the data that, that needs to get pushed across these networks, it's well worthwhile for these hyperscalers and for the rest of us to benefit from this. Like, it's huge, guys. Which is why they're regularly spending billions of dollars a year, these hyperscalers, in laying cable, in innovating new types of cable to make more bandwidth available so that things can happen faster with less latency. For instance, there's a $10 billion investment planned this year or over the next couple of years in laying new, new undersea cables. Um, so I mentioned repairs earlier and they're pretty, the repairs are actually pretty low tech. <laughs> um, they have to fish them out, splice in a new length, and then fish the other end out and splice and connect the two so that, you know, the light can pass through. And I mentioned repeaters. Um, repeaters basically are powered nodules that stick off of the cable every 30 to 60 miles to, well, repeat the pulses of light that go through. Because after so long, there's entropy, right? The signal will lose coherence. And when the signal loses coherence, you lose data, which is in unacceptable. Especially when you're talking about, you know, economic, like big money transferring, right? Stocks. Woo. Anyway, um,
this is caught the repairs are costly but well worth it because if the system goes down and by the way um big scary monster putin threatened relatively recently that these undersea cables were free were free game for being attacked that's kind of scary um so how do they lay this stuff well there are these specialized ships which handle multiple mega spools of this fiber optic cable and for the average ones you know the the garden the garden hose size ones they can hold up to 600 miles of cable per one of these mega spools okay of course thicker spools and these ships usually have about three of these spools I didn't mention that so that's about 1800 miles of cable, of average fiber optic cable per ship okay thicker cables of course which are being developed now house multiple fiber optic cores and this cuts down the length which will fit on one of these massive spools for obvious reasons So yeah. So what makes all this so expensive other than the fact that you're talking about several hundred miles of fine optically perfect glass tubes at the core of these cables? Well, I mentioned the repeaters. And along with these repeaters, there has to be a an equally long length of copper core of copper to run the power to each of these repeaters every 30 to 60 miles so that the signal doesn't get lost. Um, you know, I mentioned entropy. The law of entropy says that every everything decays, right? So every signal will decay. Whether it's photonic or electronic, it doesn't matter. It will decay over time. So every so often, it has to be refreshed. I mean, the same thing happens with massive radio stations. They, like, their main towers are super powerful, but then they have to have repeaters every so often so that more people can listen, right? That's, it's the same idea, just on a single cable. So yeah, and if you want to, if you want more in depth than this, feel free to read the article. <laughs> Moving on to another favorite whipping boy of mine, Elon. Yeah, I, I, I don't like Elon. Trust him. He makes all these grandiose gestures about and pronouncements about being all about free speech, right? This fool. This fool. (laughs) 
Pardon me. Oh, by the way, this is this this is the Rumble stream. You should take a look at it. Anyway, um, so they're suing an anti-hate campaign over research that they did on Twitter over the last several months since Elon bought it. Okay. Mr. Free Speech Absolutist himself can't take the heat. These reports hurt their bottom line too much. And if you guys have been paying attention, Twitter or X, whatever, anyway, the platform has been kind of dissolute. Has not been making money for a very long time. And Elon tried to try to change that by firing a whole lot of people. Um, which should have, but actually we know that it didn't. We know that Twitter actually became more censorious, became more ready to work with governments over shutting down speech than it was before. What? What happened to free speech absolutism? Well, I think reality hit Elon. And he probably didn't fire enough of the right people to shut down these pipelines into the company. But I digress. Anyway, so there's a small nonprofit which exists to combat online hate speech. Whatever the, whatever the, in God's name that actually means. I mean, seriously, since there seems, since so much seems to change in terms of the definitions almost daily in terms of what's acceptable speech online, right? It, it's a joke, you guys. Um, hate speech is nonsense. I mean, yeah, it's no fun to be bullied. And my heart goes out to people who do get cyberbullied. But if you're kind of asking for it, maybe I don't feel so sorry for you. Anyway, Musk and Company is suing the Center for Countering Digital Hate, or the CCDH, for unlawful acts to improperly access to it, well, access its data. Okay. So what unlawful acts do they allege? Well, more or less they commit the end result was that they committed libel is what they're claiming. They defamed the company through multiple reports, which they published, which state that X or formerly known as Twitter why do I feel like I'm talking about Prince? <laughs> it has been, has seen an explosion in what is categorized as hate speech. Because according to the data it gathered, the platform has been ignoring up to 99% of complaints against blue check accounts. Now the platform is alleging that the CCDH illegally scraped data from it and improperly had access to a brand watch account. 
which is a tool that allows companies to keep tabs on conversations around them, their products and services on the platform. These are big deal issues, and perhaps Elon and company are right to sue for damages here. And they're suing for 10 or $20 million in lost revenue because sensitive big companies um, paused ad spend on the platform due to these reports. On the other hand, it, if you couldn't tell, it's kind of a really bad look for him. Mr. Free Speech Absolutist is suing somebody who's challenging him, who hurt the bottom line for his business. How does that make sense? Maybe take it in stride and fix whatever needs to be fixed. Unless you're actually trying to be all about free speech, in which case there's a lot of censorship that needs to get shut down and those pipelines into Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, need to be shut down from government sources. Somehow I don't think that's ever going to happen. I really doubt it. Anyway. We'll see what happens. Do we want the billionaire Goliath to be vindicated, or will the David in this story win out? Is hate speech a valid concern? Personally, if you couldn't tell, I don't think it is. I think everybody needs to get off the outrage cycle and learn how to grow a pear, perhaps, or at least some thicker skin so that you're not so easily offended by words, so that you're not so hurt by, by mean tweets. <laughs> and, you know, disconnect from the programming that tells us that increased outrage, outrage equals increased rightness. What do you guys think? Let me know in the comments. Um, yeah, it's kind of dumb, frankly. But you guys let me know. You guys let me know. This is dumb. This is dumb. And by the way, it wasn't Brandon that actually did it to us. He, he finished the job. He finished the job, but the job was started by W way back in 2007. He signed this giant turd into law. You know, incandescent bulbs just work. They may not last as long as some other more recent tech, but they all, but they also aren't usually toxic. Here's looking at you, CFLs. Here's looking at you, LEDs. Because while these other light, lighting technologies last longer and use less energy, 
to produce the same amount of light. Um, and, you know, this, this bin is more concerned about energy usage. And, you know, I, I have this funny feeling, a funny a feeling, as, as my wife would say, a funny a feeling, um, that the whole impetus for this bill back in 2007 was special interests was you know perhaps Phillips or Siemens or you know one of the other uh, LED manufacturers possibly even GE I don't know if they were in the game at that point but now they certainly are and there have been so many others since then but I digress yeah, I think they grease the palms of these legislators, of these bureaucrats. And that's not hard to do. Wave enough money in their faces, and they'll vote your way. It's corruption. Anyway, um, so this ban. Now, now, bans companies from producing mainstream incandescent bulbs. Now, there are some specialty bulbs um, which are still available, which are still legal to produce. Specialty bulbs, three-way bulbs, chandelier bulbs, refrigerator bulbs, and plant grow lights, among others, have not been banned. Just the regular old... It, these guys right here the ones that you screw into your into your lamps the ones that you screw into your ceiling fixtures if you still use these okay they can't be sold anymore yeah can't be sold can't be produced all right so you know, I can understand banning CFLs. Those things are terrible. I mean, you, you break them, they're toxic. Sure, they last longer. And perhaps they have different color, color gradations. Um, and to be honest, the lighting for my videos, for my streams, is LED. And there is a noticeable flicker. I wish there wasn't. But they take up so much less power than incandescent and throw off so much less heat. That's what makes incandescent bulbs so, well, incandescent and so inefficient. Because they literally just have a, a little treated piece of cotton as a filament that glows really, really hot when you run current through it. It's very simple. Very simple. But, you know, and call me a nostalgist. Call me someone who just wants to go back to the good old days. And maybe I am. But to me, incandescent bulbs, incandescent light is 
it's classic, it's cozy, it's comfortable, even if they're in inefficient and wear out way more quickly than either CFL or LED, okay? But, but, and you know, the, the rules here, the rules here. <laughs> Let's scroll through just a little bit. So you don't have to throw away your old light bulbs. Don't hear that, but you won't be able to replace them with other incandescents. You can use CFLs for now. Um, so the regulations for efficiency, um, were at 45 Watts per lumen, but now they want 120 Watts per lumen by the end of 2024. So that would basically ban CFLs, which generate just 50 to 70 lumens per Watt. And, and by the way, an average incandescent only produces 15 or only produces one lumen per 15 watts. So they're, they are very in, inefficient. Um, Vermont already banned CFLs and back in February and here in California, good old, good old commie Fornistan, um, our ban will take effect next year. I plan to be not in California by then, but you know, um, there are some other states, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, and others, which are either con considering outright bans or increased restrictions on CFLs. Because as I said earlier, CFLs are terrible. Th I mean, they're more efficient than incandescent, but they're highly toxic. You don't want to break one of those bulbs. Seriously. Um... And they still get really, really hot, unlike LED. So what is LED? Well, LED basically runs current through a microchip, which illuminates a tiny little diode that LED stands for light emitting diode. Okay. You probably know that by now. So they're more expensive, but can last 30 times longer than a standard incandescent and three to five times longer than a CFL. So it's a big deal. They're more efficient and they last longer. Big benefits, but they flicker. And that adds eye strain. By the way, your computer screen, your cell phone screen is LED, AMOLED or OLED. But notice the LED in there. And they're good to a certain extent. But they're also inflexible. Um, many cannot be dimmed. It's just one level of output, period. And the ones that can be adjusted, the ones that can be dimmed, are more expensive because that's more electronics that have to go into these things. 
okay? So, yeah. That's what you need to know about the ban. It went into effect on July 31st. Um, yeah. I've never seen an LED bulb that didn't flicker, especially cheap ones. Um, we have a, a string of, or a couple of strings of twinkle lights in our living room. And if you turn off the other lights in the room and it's dark enough, you start to notice the flicker. Like they kind of pulse and it's annoying, frankly. Um, so yeah, I, the reality is that this ban was probably unnecessary because as this article said, uh, incandescent bulb cells were only 20% of all bulbs sold in the first quarter this year. That doesn't sound very necessary. It sounds like most people have already made the switch for better or for worse. Uh, guess, you know, many of us were brainwashed by the eco cult into valuing the envir environment more than their own health and pocketbooks. Because remember, these LED bulbs, especially good ones, are more expensive than their traditional counterparts. And as in terms of health, I don't want to scare you because there haven't been a whole lot of studies done on the effects of LED light. I mean, we're kind of bathed in it these days, especially if you live in, in a new apartment or a new home, they default to installing LED. The new builders. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see as time goes on. Moving right along though, we've got an interesting story. The LK99 superconductor. Is it a superconductor? We don't know. There's a, a, a team in Korea that allegedly discovered this, released a couple of papers to ArcSiv, which is kind of where scientists put their initial drafts for their for their papers to be peer-reviewed to be edited and revised before being submitted to the public through something like i don't know science or popular mechanic well popular mechanics isn't about uh peer-reviewed anyway so a room temperature superconductor. That's a really big deal. This is something that we've been chasing for like 50 years, guys. Why? Well, in order to create a superconductor now, the materials that we have now have to be super cooled, like down to near absolute zero in order to actually achieve superconduction. What is superconduction? Well, it basically gets rid of whatever normal resistance exists in that material. 
which is why when you're dealing with a superconductor, one of the things, one of the ways that you can tell that you're dealing with a superconductor is if you put it over a magnet, it will levitate. Okay, it'll float. So what is absolute zero? Negative 473 degrees Kelvin, or about negative 450 Fahrenheit. That's cold, y'all. And it takes a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of helium, because usually it's liquid helium that they use to super cool things, in order to make that happen. It would lead to more stable computers, faster computers. It would improve the development for quantum computing because the, the price prohibition, like it's so price prohibitive just to develop quantum computers because of this need to super cool them. And by the way, you could have a maglev cheaper and possibly even faster. So yeah, this substance is called LK99 and Twitter, Twitter or X, whatever, has been blowing up with people commenting on it. Now, I don't, I don't pretend to be a material scientist or a physicist or anything like that. But I wanted to talk about it anyway. The problem is that no one's been able to replicate their findings yet. That's a crucial part of science. And I'm talking about little s science, guys, not big s science. And the difference there is one of philosophy and one of application. Little s is the scientific method. You come up with a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and then you write about it. That's the scientific method. Then if it doesn't work, you go back to the drawing board and you try again. That's little s science. It's very humble. Okay, very humble. However, Big S science is what we saw with Anthony Fauci when they talk about um, following the science. No, that's not science, guys, because science is not about groupthink. Science is about using your individual brain to figure something out through experimentation. Okay, that's real science. Big S science is whatever's convenient for the powers that be. Whatever's convenient for the powers that be. And that, hmm, that leads to problems for the rest of us, doesn't it? Because then you hear, well, you can't be a climate denier because you gotta follow the science. Um, the reason that there's so much weight behind climate science is because there's so much money behind it. And by the way, if as a scientist, <clears throat> if, a, if as a scientist, you speak against it, well, you're committing sacrilege and you'll probably get run out on a rail or the equivalent.
So keep that in mind, guys. When people talk about science, are they talking about little s science, the method that led to the Enlightenment? Or are we talking about what's convenient for the government? What's convenient for the big money interests? And who knows? Who knows, you guys? Um, anyway, so all that to say that using little s science is important. And checking people's work. Peer reviewing articles like this. Papers like this. Is crucial. Do you think it's important, though, that LK99 was allegedly discovered you think it's lame is it epic or are you going huh what's he talking about <laughs> let me know in the comments um so yeah it's it could be a breakthrough but and maybe it'll lead to a breakthrough maybe it'll lead to a genuine article uh room temperature superconductor which would effectively change the world yeah it's that big of a deal I don't want to hype this one but I did feel like it was important to talk about alright so thanks for tuning in guys thanks for watching never forget don't ever forget let's go Brandon please if you're on Rumble, toss me a like, subscribe, share the video, comment down below. The music is Warzone by Anno Domini Beats, as always. My name's Matthew Patton. This is for FOSS News from Tech Freedom. This has been the Weekend Edition. If you have a comment that you don't want to leave publicly, email me, media at techfreedom.pro. Thanks so much, and I will see you guys next week.